Welcome to the Truth Snack Podcast. If you are doubting or deconstructing, you're in the right place because Truth Snack journeys with doubting Christians toward confident faith. We're in between season one and two, but I felt like I needed to share this talk I gave at Implementa, which is a gathering of youth ministers. And maybe you're thinking, I'm not a youth minister, and that's okay, because my talk, entitled Doubt's Recipe, was about the bad theology that gets taught in churches and can actually cause doubts for Christians. The challenging question that we should all ask is whether we've encountered these teachings. Have they created a doubt recipe in us? And maybe most humbling of all, have we ever been the ones teaching it to others? So I invite you to listen in, join the adventurous truth-seeking, and don't hesitate to share your thoughts with me at matt.truthsnack.ca. All right, let's get into it. Our key text, I just want to read the Great Commission, which hopefully you're familiar with in Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20. It says, Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And so sometimes I think uh, we're very familiar with that passage, but I think we actually misunderstand it in several ways and can create a bit of a doubt recipe. And so if you're taking notes, I hope you are. Um, I want to talk about three conditions that cultivate doubt instead of discipleship. And the first is to have an incoherent view of salvation. In Acts 16, the jailer asks the disciples, uh, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they say to him, believe in the Lord Jesus, you will be saved, you and your household. And that word believe in the Greek is pistis. It can also be translated in the New Testament, often is translated in the New Testament, also as uh, faith or trust. But in our 21st century modern context, when we hear believe, we tend to think of an intellectual agreement. You believe something, you tick the box that you believe that that's true. And if that's what we mean by, you know, what, what do we have to do to be saved? That we have to tick the intellectual box that Jesus is Lord and you will be saved. Then I think we're going to run into some serious problems. I, I spend a lot of time on YouTube and uh, there are a lot of YouTube channels that are basically committed to people being, um, you know, on heresy watch. They basically just assess leaders in the church and they assess whether their teaching is 100% biblical. And if it's not, they label them a heretic and they say, you shouldn't associate with them because they're a false teacher and they call their salvation into question. So there's a lot of questioning of, are you a real Christian based on the minutia of what you believe? And I think it's not just on YouTube that this happens. This is where I'm going to poke at us. Okay. If within your church, if anyone ever goes around saying, are insert denomination, real Christians. What that implies is that our beliefs here at this church are right. And so we're real Christians, but those people in that denomination, they have incorrect beliefs. And so maybe they're not real Christians. See what we're doing there. We're taking this idea of belief and we're actually tying it directly to whether that's what makes you saved or not. There are some biblical issues with that. 
The first <laughs> is this wonderful story where Jesus is, is dying on the cross and the thief next to Jesus says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. I don't think it's a stretch to believe that that thief dying on the cross had a very incomplete view of who Jesus was. Did he understand that Jesus was divine? I don't know. What was his view of end times? Probably not very robust. What was his view of biblical inspiration? I don't know. Maybe he was a devout Jew, so maybe he had a bit of that. But but we don't really know what this man believed. But I'm 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 I feel confident to say that his theology was not very well developed. He may have held lots of beliefs that weren't true. And then there's another side in the book of James. James tries to point out that belief alone, it can't possibly be enough to save. Because he says, you believe there's one God, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. Okay, so beliefs can't be the whole game. So am I saying beliefs don't matter? Of course they do. Of course, beliefs matter because you can't trust in someone that you don't think exists. So your beliefs about God influence your relationship with God. And similarly, you won't trust someone you don't think is actually good. So it's, it's for certain the case that our beliefs influence our relationship with God, but the connection between belief and being a Christian is not as infallible a guide as we would like it to be. And we were talking about hockey a few minutes ago. And so I'll just say 42% of NHL players are Canadian. And so if you were to meet an NHL player, it would be reasonable to ask them, are you Canadian? That would be reasonable. But not every NHL player is Canadian. And it would be even more ridiculous to meet a Canadian and to say, are you an NHL player? Okay. What I'm trying to say is that the connection between being a Canadian and an NHL player, there is a connection there, but it's not as reliable a guide as we might think. And similarly... It's tempting to read a verse like, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved and think that our intellectual beliefs have a one-to-one ratio to those who are saved. But then the scriptures tell us a thief on the cross who doesn't fully understand Jesus is saved and the demons who have wonderful theology clearly will not be saved. And so what I don't want to do is just leave us here to say this idea of intellectual belief as a paradigm for what saves us isn't good enough and just leave us there. Instead, I want to give us a different model, which is to understand this idea of pistis, belief, in a context of relational trust, okay? A well-precedented biblical motif for salvation is that the unrighteous are saved by connecting themselves to the righteous. It is all throughout scripture that Noah is saved because he's righteous, but so is his family. And they're not, it says nothing about their righteousness. And yet they're saved because of Noah's righteousness or Rahab as Israel is coming into the promised land. Rahab is saved. Now she's righteous, but also her whole family is saved as well. Not because they're righteous, but because she's righteous. Moses intercedes with God for Israel. And God wants to destroy all of Israel because he's done with them. But God won't because Moses says, I will not separate myself from them. And because God is unwilling to destroy him, 
He's also unwilling to destroy Israel. And of course, this is the case with Christ. We're saved not because we have all the, uh, a pure doctrine of Jesus and the Bible and Christian theology, but rather it is because the unrighteous can be attached to the righteous. This is the biblical motif that we see throughout scripture. And so even in Matthew 7, when Jesus is talking about those who who seem to be performing miracles. They're saying, Lord, Lord, they're saying all the right things about Jesus. He ends up saying to them, depart from me for your doctrine wasn't pure enough. No, he doesn't say, no, for I never knew you. I never knew you. And so this is kind of point number one. We can have an incoherent view of salvation that gets into our churches where we, where we teach people that we're saved through our doctrinal purity by believing the right things. But that is not the paradigm that scripture gives us. The unrighteous are saved through relationship, through connecting themselves to the righteous. Romans 8, 15 and 7 to 17 says this. And I think this lays out the paradigm I'm talking about well. The spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him, we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are, we are God's children. Now, if we are his children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. And so back to our core text this morning, the great commission, when it talks about baptizing them in the name of the father and the son, understand that baptism is an identification with a covenant. That's someone saying, I'm, I'm the unrighteous person. I want to symbolize my death and resurrection into a new life. I want to identify with Jesus. I want that covenant with him. Doing something in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit doesn't mean that as you baptize someone, you say those words. It means that you're bringing them into the purpose and the power of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's a relational thing that you are doing. We're not saved through doctrinal purity. Rather, we're saved by belonging to Christ. It's important. We're going to, this is all going to loop back around to doubters at the end. The second piece is this. Um, this is kind of the second recipe that can really add to a doubt crisis. We can have an incomplete understanding of knowing what it means to know. The philosophical field of um, the theory of knowledge is called epistemology, and it's actually it's, it's nerdy, it's difficult, but it's actually really interesting to ask, what is knowledge? And so I want to ask you, I have a book here that I, I highly recommend. It's called A Little Manual for Knowing by Esther Meek. She's a philosopher. I've interviewed her and she's just brilliant. Um, but I, I would ask this question, does this book have knowledge within it? And I think that we would say, well, of course it does. It, it, it must contain something in here. I mean, Matt, you seem to like the book. You know, there must be something in there knowledgeable. There must be knowledge within this book. But that's because in the 21st century, modern thinkers like us, we think of knowledge as information. So the internet has knowledge. But Dr. Meek would challenge us to think about knowledge in a different way, in a much deeper way. I invite you to think of knowledge in the sense of what it means to know how to ride a bike. You could go online and you could Google how to ride a bike. And I'm sure there would be some helpful videos and, and some helpful articles that would tell you what to do. You know, don't stop pedaling or something like that. You can go online and you can research the physics formula 
for what's all happening with the motion that allows you to ride on a bike, but all that information actually doesn't empower you in knowing how to ride the bike. You have to put it in practice before you know how to ride a bike. That's a bit of a brain wrinkle, but information is not knowledge. We have a disembodied sense of what it means to know, but there's no such thing as biking without a biker. And there's no such thing as dancing without a dancer. And there's also no such thing as knowing without a knower. So strictly speaking, this book doesn't know anything. (laughs) It might have information. It might have something that we can learn from, that we can apply and it can become knowledge as we put it into practice. But modern thinking tells us that knowledge is disembodied. It's information. But that's not a biblical paradigm for what it means to know. God says about Israel, you only have I known. He's not saying that he doesn't know other nations. He doesn't know where they are or who they are. Of course, he's talking about a relational paradigm with them. Dallas Willard says it this way. He calls knowing an interactive relationship with. Now, we come about this in like our teaching in youth group. When we tell people, you know, there's a big difference between knowing about God and knowing God. It's the same distinction that we're trying to make. Coming to know God is less about information than it is about relational transformation. Okay. And so what it, when we're talking about knowing God, um, it needs to be experienced. Here's an example I thought of, you know, if you were trying to help someone understand and know what the Trinity means. You could teach them the Athanasian creed, like, like maybe you would hope that they'd walk around and be able to say, you know, we worship one God in Trinity, Trinity in unity, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the essence. Like maybe you would want them to know that creed, but we all admit that, you know, the Trinity is famously hard to explain. The more you talk about it, the closer you are to getting it wrong and saying something heretical, right? And so we could compare it to an egg or we could compare it to water, but we all know that those illustrations break down. And ultimately we accept that it is mysterious, that the Trinity is mysterious. We can't break it down to purely information. And if knowledge is information on that modern way of thinking, then can we really know the Trinity? That's a pickle. That's a pickle for modern thinking. But the Bible gives us a different paradigm for knowing, an interactive relationship with. And so in John 17, Jesus says, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also, may they, his followers, also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I and them and you in me so that they may be brought to complete unity. Jesus actually invites us not to just know about the Trinity in some sort of informational sense. Jesus is inviting us to know the Trinity via experience in a biblical sense. So, um, and Jesus works in this paradigm, in this way of thinking. In the Sermon of the Mount, Jesus is not, is not interested in us simply knowing the law or knowing what it is he's teaching. He's not even interested simply in us knowing it and even doing it. You know, he says, your righteousness needs to actually surpass the Pharisees. They know the law and they try really hard to keep it. But Jesus is saying, no, 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 I'm actually looking for an interactive relationship of transformation. 
The Sermon on the Mount is based on this idea. It's not just about knowing, and it's not even just about knowing and doing. It's about becoming the kind of person who wouldn't want to lust or murder or hate or steal. And that is a transformation. Okay, so to bring the second point to a close, and we'll move on to our final point. What we've accidentally done is created a break between what it means to be a Christian and what it means to be a disciple. Sadly, it seems that you can be a Christian by believing all the right things and ticking the boxes, but you don't necessarily have to be a disciple. But if you choose to be a disciple of Jesus, then that implies that you will be transformed to reflect the message, the mission, and the character of your rabbi. And so listen, back to our core text for today. Matthew 28, when when Jesus says, teach them to obey everything I am commanded you, you can hear that in your head as an informational thing. Tell them all the things that I told you, make sure that they can put it down on a piece of paper, make sure they can recite it to you. Or you can hear it this way. Jesus is saying, actually help them transform to be the kind of people who don't just know that I said, love your enemy, but can actually do it. That's supernatural. And so discipleship is not just acquiring information information or behavioral change, but rather it's becoming like Jesus through a deepening relationship. Here's a third ingredient in a recipe for doubt is that people often have an immature ability to encounter God. So we've already talked about modernism and, uh, and a modern concept of knowledge greatly limits the ways that we can encounter God. I think you'll recognize this immediately. In our culture, we, um, we favor reason and things that are objective, facts, science, logic, information. Those words will get you quite far when building an argument. These words won't get you quite as far. Faith, personal, subjective, experience, religion, intuition, Ooh, those all sound like dirty words. If you're trying, if you're trying to convince people to think like you, if you had a subjective experience that was religious, you're not going to win a lot of people to agreeing with you. And so unfortunately, even within the church, we shy away from those things. This year on Truth Snack, a lot of my work has been revolving around um, this idea that encounter with God actually anchors our faith during times of doubt. And so I've created videos on, on how do we encounter God through the Bible and through prayer? How do we encounter God to know his will? And I even did a mini series asking mentors in my life, how do you discern God's will? And I'll be honest. Um, I've mentioned this series and the work that I do to, yeah, I want to say half a dozen to a dozen Christian leaders. And whenever I bring up discerning God's voice, what I always hear, the first thing I hear is, it can't conflict with scripture. And of course that's true, but that's what I hear. You can, it can't conflict with scripture. And then they say something else. You got to be really careful. You don't misrepresent God. As soon as we bring up this idea of actually having an encounter with God and discerning the voice of the spirit, unfortunately, what comes out are these do not statements. You know, maybe we shouldn't go there because we might get it wrong, but I see that sometimes within our churches, we create a culture of limiting how we can encounter God. Does God speak outside the Bible? Well, it can be messy. It's true. It can be messy. And so some people say, you know, maybe let's just stick to the Bible. 
But then when we read the Bible, sometimes we treat it as a list of moral do's and don'ts, or we filter it through our denominational filters, our doctrinal checklists, or we just avoid the the Old Testament because it's weird (laughs) and it's hard. Okay. We believe that we can encounter God through nature, but most of us don't actually go out into nature very often. And then we're suspicious of emotions, experience, miracles, the arts, the scriptures, if you actually take them seriously, open up a variety of ways that we can encounter God inside and outside the Bible. Because we are rightly worried that we could misrepresent God, unfortunately, sometimes we limit the ways that we're willing to even try. Here in Scotland, there's a bit of a, like a foraging culture. That might sound weird, but it's it's really a thing here. People will like learn the plants, learn the mushrooms, and like they'll go out into the woods and they will forage for food. It's a thing. There are Facebook groups. I see them walking. You know, people will forage. And it's tempting to say you might eat something dangerous. It might go poorly, right? And you could get sick. Um, but what I've noticed that th- is that those with the most wisdom, those who are the most mature, those who are the most discerning of what will make you sick and what will actually nourish you are the least afraid. And so the Bible tells us that, you know, Jesus says, my sheep will hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. And I worry that sometimes even Christian leaders, rather than helping ourselves and others grow in our ability to recognize God's voice, we've taken an approach where instead we try to eliminate possibilities in which mature discernment is necessary. And because of that, I think we have a generation of Christians who don't know how to discern the voice of God. (laughs) All right. If this topic is stretching you, I recommend this book um, by Gary Thomas. It's called Sacred Pathways. He's a nice Baptist guy, so he's not going to get too weird and scary if that if if all of what I'm saying feels too crazy to you. He does a really good job of opening up the way we think in order to be open to how God might speak to us in a variety of ways. Of course, not excluding scripture and not superseding it, but working in tandem with it. Back to our core text today. Jesus, and we often lop this part off of the Great Commission, but at the end he says, and surely I am with you always to the end of the age. It's not just a promise that we can kind of feel nice, that we won't be abandoned, and Jesus is kind of there somewhere. We're meant to have an ongoing relationship of encounter with God. And so we must empower people to discern God's voice, not create a fearful avoidance of instances where we need to discern God. I think that these these things all together create a recipe for doubt. If we have an incoherent view of salvation that is based on belief and not belonging, when we have an incomplete understanding of knowing that is based on information, not transformation, and when we have an immature ability to encounter God, and we tell, and people learn to limit the ways that they're even open to hearing from God. And so what I want to do as we end is to just show us what it can look like when I think all these ingredients come together in a doubt recipe. So let me read you a story that is loosely based on several conversations I've had with people this year. Alex is a student in your group. And while on YouTube, She watched a video claiming Jesus never really existed. 
The video seems to cite experts, and so it makes her feel deeply uncomfortable. After asking her youth leader about it, she finds out that Jesus mythicists aren't well-respected by academics. They're considered the flat earthers of historical Jesus research. That makes Alex feel better. But now YouTube is suggesting videos about the Bible being corrupted, Jesus' divinity being invented by the church, a pile of skeptical videos about slavery in the Bible and the doctrine of hell. All of a sudden, her evenings are spent watching lectures and debates and trying to sort it all out. While there are intelligent Christians defending what she was taught growing up, it's clear from their own account that the issues are way more complex than she first thought, and her questions multiply exponentially. Months later, she still has complicated questions about Jesus, God, and the Bible, and she starts feeling hopeless that she will figure it out at all. If academics, all smarter than her, disagree, maybe she can't know the truth. People at church just seem to believe it, despite the naysayers. Already, her beliefs have morphed. She no longer thinks exactly what her pastor does about the age of the earth, end times theology, or women in ministry. She's also confused that many Christians seem disengaged from important issues like climate change and racism. When she brings it up, she's told that she's making everything political. She becomes increasingly interested in another Christian tradition, but her peers and even some leaders are telling her that they compromise the truth of Christianity so their ears can be tickled. They say they're worried about her, but she can also see they're growing tired of her challenges. It's been an exhausting year and a half since all this started. Alex is moving away for university this fall. Over the summer, she reflects on her faith. She still reads and researches, but she no longer feels like she's part of the in-group at church. She feels like God is nowhere after praying for the millionth time. When was the last time she felt God's presence? Maybe when she was a kid? At any rate, it was years ago, and she's no longer even sure if that was God. A few months later, after arriving on campus, she feels it would be fake to join the Christian groups that focus on evangelism. Over the next few years, she disengages from church altogether. She still likes to believe God is there, but she has no confidence she can really know him. I think this story is a result of the doubt recipe that we can offer people unintentionally. Instead of setting conditions for doubt, how can we set conditions for discipleship? Thanks for listening to the Truth Snack Podcast. If this episode was an encouragement to you, will you share it with someone else you think it will encourage? Thanks again. See you next time.